0: As I was thinking about the passage that we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 7 this morning, I was thinking about the fact that um, you and I, we very seldom tend to willingly expose our weaknesses, our struggles, our failures. Um, I'm not saying that we, you know, we're that guy who arrogantly announces all of his achievements and victories. Yet, it's true that that all of us far prefer to let others see our strengths and not our fragility. And those of us who are, are, are seeking to seriously follow Christ, as we seek to live lives that are pleasing to him, and as we seek to live those lives in the midst of a world that is freely giving itself to sin, well... There's a dynamic there that we need to be careful of because we can be we can be prone to beginning to think that at least compared to others that we're doing pretty good. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a dangerous place to be because if we think that we're doing okay, then we are not going to realize just how desperately we need God's mercy. We will we will lose sight of our utterly critical need for God's grace. And that's when we will begin to lose the joy over our salvation. And that's when we will begin to lose our appetite, our desire for worshiping the Savior. You know, if we look in scripture, we'll see that it was just after Nathan, the prophet, confronted King David, about his sin with Bathsheba. Remember that moment? It was right after that. And it was in the midst of of David really seeing his sin and, and wholeheartedly repenting and grieving over what it was that he had done. It was when David was so fully aware of his failure that he wrote Psalm 51. There, David confesses his guilt, his unworthiness to receive the mercy of God, And he asks God for that mercy that he doesn't deserve. Listen to verses 10 through 12. There David says, God, create a clean heart for me. David is realizing, I can't even have a clean heart. I can't do this myself. I need you to create this clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me, David says. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Man, in that moment, David is so aware of how much he needs the Lord to be working in him. There's an awareness of our need for and our lack of merit of God's mercy. There is an awareness of, awareness of our need for that mercy to do a work within us of cleansing and of changing us and it is from that awareness that there is birthed a joy over our salvation and a hunger for worshiping our Savior do you lack that joy do you lack joy over the mere fact that you are saved Do you lack a strong desire for worship? Do you just wait for the singing to get over, to get to the part that matters in your mind? If you don't have a strong desire to worship the Savior, then I would would say that maybe you might want to consider, you might want to consider that just maybe it's because you've forgotten your desperate need for that Savior. This morning in... Luke chapter 7, in verses 36 through 50, we are going to see Jesus interact with two people. One is a Pharisee, a righteous man, and the other is a sinful woman, probably a prostitute. One sees her need for mercy, while the other is utterly blind to his own depravity. And so while she worships freely, focused on the Savior, he ends up getting caught up in judging all of those around him. Well, let's take a look at our passage. I hope you have your Bibles with you. Open them up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 36. There Luke writes, Then one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other... 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "I suppose the one he forgave more." "You've judged correctly," he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us this morning. As we're spread across the community, Lord, we know that, uh, oh, our fellowship may be hampered, but your spirit is not. And so, Lord, we ask that you would teach us by the work of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would give us a willingness to see our own hearts, to allow you to search them and to show us what it is that you see. And Father, I pray that as we look at this passage, we would see the Savior that we would allow him to capture our eyes and our hearts and that that would change us. Work in this time, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We read in Scripture that Jesus often shared meals with other people. It seems that it was something that he enjoyed quite often. Scripture never tells us of him refusing an invitation, and yet it seems that it was an unusual thing for one of the religious leaders to invite Jesus to share a meal with him. They weren't usually that friendly toward Jesus. And as it turns out, this Pharisee and this dinner may not have been a terribly friendly event in and of itself. It's interesting that the host of this dinner seems less appreciative of his guest than does an uninvited interloper. Well, let's get started. Verse 36, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to eat with him. And so Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So let me set the scene a little bit. Because this host was a Pharisee, a, a member of a religious sect that took the law very, very seriously. We can know that everything would have been done with strict decorum. The house would have been clean. The mill would have been absolutely kosher. The other guests would have all been upstanding good company. And they would have lounged on on cushions, laying on their left side with their feet away from the table, eating with their right hands. And we know this. Uninvited observers from the community would have been free to come and go to sit around the edges of the room or the courtyard where the dinner was and to listen in and even participate in the conversation. Now, I know that seems odd to us, but that's what they did. What wouldn't have been normal, though, would have been for a sinful woman, likely a prostitute, to have entered a pharisee's home a pharisee's home on a night when he was hosting for dinner a wandering rabbi that was unusual and probably it was quite uncomfortable both for the pharisee and for the woman and yet that's what happened verse 37 and a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining a table in the Pharisee's house, and she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping. Began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. So as Jesus and the Pharisee eat their meal, a woman comes in. And it wasn't just any woman, it was that woman. Uh, that woman that everyone in that town knew about, uh, she comes around the table and she has a plan. She has an alabaster container of of perfume, a container of of probably very expensive perfume because it was in a very expensive container. And she comes and she stands behind Jesus and she begins to weep. And when her tears fall on Jesus' feet, Not just one or two, but enough that Luke says that she began to wash his feet with her tears. She stoops down and begins to wipe away her tears with her hair. She begins to kiss his feet. And eventually she takes the expensive perfume. She pours it out upon the Savior's feet. Certainly, Everything else stopped. I'm sure the conversation around the table died. The servants stood frozen, unsure of what to do. The others at the table, I could see them staring in disbelief. It was not only unusual, it was an uncomfortably intimate expression of love and gratitude. It was beautiful it was powerful it was impossible to ignore even more than you or I would naturally sense you see in a culture where a Pharisee or a rabbi like Jesus for that matter would not associate with a woman who was not his wife and in a culture where a woman would only let down her hair when she was alone with her husband. This scene is one that is intense and personal. This was not a detached or restrained recognition of Jesus's goodness. It was a very personal, intimately heartfelt thanks for goodness done to her. And it was costly. It was a costly act. This woman, probably not a woman of great means, poured out what we believe to have been a very expensive perfume onto the feet of the Savior. Truly, her worship is everything that I want my worship of Jesus to be. It's real. It's powerful. It's personal. And it was a true sacrifice. I think it's exactly the kind of worship that Jesus had in mind when in John four twenty-four, he said to the woman at the well that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Too often, my worship, well, let's just say it would be easy to ignore. It's often casual comfortable. Oh, I sing, but I'm often sadly fairly unfocused upon the one to whom I sing. I do express my thanks and my praise, but often I do so without truly feeling thankful. My worship at times can be cold, powerless focused on whether or not I am enjoying it. And when we worship like that, like this Pharisee, we risk falling into the rut of judgment. We begin... Instead of letting our eyes rest upon the Savior, we begin to let our eyes rest upon anyone and everyone else. We look at every idiosyncrasy, every quirk, every foible, every fault of the worship leader, of the person singing behind us, of the person waving their hands in front of us. We fail to see the one thing that we need to see, and that's our great need, God's even greater amazing grace. Our eyes get focused on the wrong thing. Look at the Pharisee. His eyes are in the wrong place. Verse 39 When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, This man, Jesus, if he were a prophet, he would know who. And what kind of woman this is who is touching him? She's a sinner. So when the Pharisee sees this act of worship that cannot be ignored, he doesn't see the power. He doesn't see the love. He doesn't see the gratefulness. All he sees is a woman who's a sinner. And he questions uh, Jesus's ability to to see, to perceive who and, and what this woman is. Really. What he should have been asking God was to cure his blindness, to help him to see, to see his own need, to see the Savior's great mercy. He should have joined the psalmist in crying out in Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. Oh, how good it would be for us in those moments in worship, when our eyes begin to fall upon others, when we begin to become critical of the one leading worship worshiper, the, the person who is worshiping near us, if we would then cry out to God, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my concerns. Lord, heal my blindness. Help me to see both my great need and your great mercy. That's exactly where Jesus points him, to look at himself and to consider his great need. Look at verse 40, Jesus replied to him. By the way, notice here, the Pharisee had not said anything out loud, but yet Jesus responds to what he was thinking. He's replying to something that Simon did not yet say. Simon had been silently wondering if Jesus was really a prophet. Apparently he was. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. And Jesus begins to tell him a story. He says a creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, 500 days wages, and the other owed 50. Since neither could pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more, Jesus asked. And Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus told him, you've judged correctly. So Jesus gives this Pharisee a really easy story problem. Obviously, the one who had the greater debt would love the most. But I want you to notice two things about what Jesus says here. First is this, though they owed different amounts. Neither could pay. Neither one could pay. So it really didn't matter who owed what because neither one could pay. And secondly, remember what Jesus is really talking about here is a debt not of money, but a debt of sin. And with sin, whether it's great or little remember what scripture tells us remember what Romans six twenty three tells us the wages of sin is death whether it's 50 days wages or 500 days wages when the wage is accounted in sin it doesn't matter how much you owe because if any is enough to kill you that's a debt that none of us can pay not if we want to live And here Romans is speaking of eternal death, of separation from God for all eternity, a debt that only Christ, because only Christ committed no sin, was able to pay. A price that because of his perfection, Christ could pay and did pay for us. As the writer of Romans tells us, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The woman saw it. The woman saw all of that. She understood. She saw her sin. She saw the Savior's mercy. Like the debtor who had been forgiven of their debt, this woman understood that she had been forgiven a tremendous debt. And because of that, she loved much. But this Pharisee, he was blind. He didn't think that Jesus could see who and what this woman was, but it was the Pharisee who was blind. He didn't see his own debt. He didn't see the Savior's great gift. He didn't see true worship for what it was, because he was blind. And his blindness impacted what he did and what he didn't do. Look at verse 44, turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, no kiss of greeting, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. The Pharisee, the follower of rules, he had disregarded every courtesy that he was supposed to offer to Jesus. He didn't wash Jesus' feet, but she did. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, but she did. He didn't anoint Jesus' head with oil, but she poured perfume upon his feet. This sinful but forgiven woman, out of gratitude and love, she honored Jesus above custom, beyond what was comfortable, exceeding the cultural norms she put into action what the psalmist put into words in psalm 95 let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker for he is our god she was unconcerned how she would look to others she didn't care How she would be perceived. She was only aware of her great, great sin and of God's even greater grace. And so she worships, while the Pharisee sits blind, unwilling to see his own sin and so unable to see the greatness of God's love for him. As Jesus put it in verse 47, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little, loves little. Now don't misunderstand, Jesus isn't saying that the Pharisee didn't need much forgiveness. What he's saying is the Pharisee didn't see his need. He, too, was utterly unable to pay his great debt of sin. But he didn't love the Savior because he didn't perceive his need. He wasn't willing to see it. And not perceiving his great need, he did not come to know God's love. And not experiencing God's love, he could not respond in love Dear friends, we must see and comprehend our sin. And we must see that God's grace is even greater. What about you? What about me? Are you aware? Have you acknowledged, have you confessed your sin to God? Christian, do you see your great need for the Savior? Are the words of Jesus to this woman there in verse 48, are they the sweetest and best words that you could ever hear? Do you long to hear him say to you, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you? go in peace, because you can know that. You can know that. In telling us why he wrote his gospel, the apostle John says that he wrote it so that we might know that we're saved. And when we humble ourselves and confess our sin to God, Scripture tells us that he is faithful and just to cleanse us, to forgive us of all of our unrighteousness. Oh, you can know. You can know the goodness of the Savior because his grace and his mercy is greater than all your sin. This week we're going to celebrate the cross. That day that we call Good Friday, the day that our Savior and our God died. It was good because he died in our place. He died to bear our sin. As scripture tells us, he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. How unthinkable is that? How great is that, that you and I, utterly unworthy, if we will confess our sin, If we will submit ourselves to the Savior, he he has paid the price for our sin upon the cross. And he will clothe us with his righteousness. That is something to celebrate. We're going to begin that celebration this morning. We are going to participate in communion together. And I hope that you've been able to gather some communion elements. If you haven't, then I would encourage you just to reflect upon the cross. Reflect upon the Savior and maybe later today you can gather with your family or, or or go off by yourself. Partake of bread, juice, or wine. and Partake of the elements and be reminded of the body and the blood of the Savior sacrificed for us. If you do have your elements gathered During this closing time of worship, I would encourage you as a family or as an individual to celebrate communion, to remember his death in our place and for the forgiveness of our sins. You could turn to Matthew chapter 26. There in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 26, you you could read this. As they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed and he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat. This is my body. And Then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Let's remember the cross, let's worship the Savior. Let's remember our great need and his even greater grace. And let's worship him in spirit and truth. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this morning, for this time, for your word. God, for the freedom to worship you. And God, I pray that you would meet each and every one of us in this time. God, that we would be so aware of your presence with us wherever we are. And Lord, that we would take this time to lock our eyes upon you. To remember the sacrifice of your death in our place the gift of your righteousness. That we would thank you in all sincerity and worship you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.